You're listening to Semper Bellum, a podcast about war. Hi, I'm Tristan. I'm a futurist, a science and technology journalist, and a U.S. military veteran. I'm joined by my wife, Nikki, a professional photographer and mental health advocate. In this introductory episode, we reference the war in Iraq and World War II. If you point your browser to loveisafetish.com slash war, you'll find our episode one immersion guide. This document has links to our sources and a plethora of resources to enhance your listening experience. And now, a content warning. War is the epitome of horror. This podcast will engage in thoughtful discussions of topics related to war to include descriptions of violence and evil. We highly recommend you avoid or cease listening if such discourse makes you uncomfortable. Our intent isn't to glorify or celebrate war, but to understand it. I was 25 when I shipped off to the Persian Gulf to participate in Operation Iraqi Freedom aboard the USS Nimitz. I remember the aircraft were screaming off the flight deck. They launched every 20 to 25 seconds. I don't recall exactly how long each trip took. It was somewhere around 15 minutes. But I remember it was hard to sleep for those first few weeks of nonstop sorties. Uh, A sortie is the, the trip the aircraft makes to its target and back. During that campaign, uh, I could see what was happening ashore via these tactical monitors we had in our squadron's ready room. Uh, ready room is like an office for pilots. You, you see it in movies like Top Gun. They're all sitting in movie theater style chairs, and someone wearing a flight suit is usually standing at a podium talking to them. Uh, these uh, tactical monitors it looked like a, a video game version of a mini map, but you could see what was going on. Uh, the coalition forces launched approximately 1,700 sorties during that engagement. In describing this operation and in the address to the American people, President Bush said, Now that conflict has come, the only way to limit its duration is to apply decisive force. And I assure you, this will not be a campaign of half measures, and we will accept no outcome but victory. Uh, despite the speech he would give later that summer in front of a mission accomplished banner, <laughs> the, uh, the Iraq war lasted another eight years. That's longer than the American Civil War and World War II combined. But back in March of 2003, when Operation Iraqi Freedom began, I was part of what would forever after be known as the coalition's shock and awe campaign. The pilots who flew those aircraft, they were my comrades, many were my shipmates, several were in my direct chain of command. The coalition forces dropped more than 80,000 tons of ordnance on Iraq, practically leveling the city of Baghdad, and nearly 7,000 civilians were killed. That was my introduction to war. By 2005, I was out of the Gulf and I was on my way to a different kind of war, the war on drugs. Uh, We'll get to that in a later episode. Even after everything I saw during the war in Iraq and the war on drugs, uh, I didn't stop sleeping through the night until I'd actually been back on shore, home, safe, for over a year. I got word that one of my friends, a young sailor I'd helped mentor, had died in the Persian Gulf while his ship was in port. For some reason, that loss, uh, above the dozens of others I'd experienced during my career, that was the one that broke me. I haven't slept through the night since. Like I said, the Iraq war officially ended in 2011, but not for me. A part of me is still there. A part of me is still fighting that war. A part of me is still fighting the war on drugs. That's the thing about wars is they never end. Not really. Not for the people who are affected by them. 
Let's talk about Shoichi Yokoi. He was an Imperial soldier who served during World War II. He found himself on the wrong end of a losing battle when U.S. forces assaulted the island of Guam. Uh, this was on 21 July, 1944. The firefighting continued until 10 August, and an estimated 7,500 remaining Japanese troops gave up the island. They beat a hasty retreat. Uh, Yokoi, a sergeant serving in the 38th Imperial Regiment, fled into the wilderness with nine other men. In short order, seven of those men admitted defeat and left the area. But of the three who remained, Yokoi among them, uh, they would refuse to surrender. And they managed to survive unaided until 1964. This was when a flood claimed the lives of two of them. This left Yokoi alone to stand his watch. Now let's stop right there. We're talking about three men who'd spent 20 years on the island of Guam, a U.S. territory. They were hiding out to evade capture from belligerent forces who ostensibly no longer existed. And all but one of them died or left. Here we have Sergeant Yokoi alone. And you have to wonder, did he ever think, ah, they might have me listed as MIA. I should find a way to report in. You know, what, what gifts? Why didn't he... Uh, why didn't he seek out his command? Why didn't he look for new orders? Why didn't he return? He would later admit to learning about the war's end in 1952. This was seven years after it actually ended, and 20 years before he would finally admit defeat. He remained at large until he was apprehended by two fishermen in January of 1972. And then there's Hiro Onoda. Now, he's perhaps the most famous Japanese holdout from the Second, uh, Second World War. Anoda, he was an officer. He spent nearly 30 years hiding out in the Philippines after the U.S. retook the island in 1945. This was a battle that ended decisively. The entire Imperial forces were either dead or captured, save Anoda and three others. Anoda was under orders to avoid capture at all costs, so he ordered his men to follow him into the hills. Uh, they hid there together until... Later, one of them would surrender to local Philippine forces in 1950. Uh, a second would be shot and killed by vigilantes in 1954, and a third was killed by police in 1972. Much like Sergeant Yokoi, Anoda found himself standing the watch alone. In 1974, an adventurer named Norio Suzuki set off on an expedition to, uh, as he put it, find either Bigfoot or the fabled hero Anoda. Uh, it, it seems like he was joking at the time, but he actually tracked Anoda down in a matter of days. The aging officer still refused to believe the war had ended, but he accepted Suzuki's company, and the two became fast friends. When Suzuki returned to Japan, he tracked down Anoda's former commanding officer. This was the one that had given him the original order to avoid capture at all costs. Uh, he was now retired from service and running a bookstore. Uh, Suzuki convinced him to return to the Philippines so that he could help Suzuki convince Anoda to return to civilization. Anoda was properly relieved of his watch on 9 March 1974. He returned to Japan and was hailed as a hero. Now that brings us to Teruo Nakamura. He was actually declared dead in 1944. Uh, when U.S. troops overtook Moritai Island, where he was stationed, uh, it was a complete rout. However, Nakamura was still very much alive at the end of combat, and he fled to avoid capture. Uh, he left with a small cadre of comrades. They held out together until the mid-1950s. That's when Nakamura decided, for whatever reason, that he was going to go stand his watch by himself. Now, as the others either surrendered or died over the years, uh, he toughed it out alone in a makeshift hut. He was finally tracked down and arrested by Indonesian forces in December of 1974. This made him the final Imperial soldier to surrender 
after World War II ended. Unlike Onoda and Yokoi, Nakamura was not greeted as a hero. He received some back pay in an amount equivalent to about $1,200 today, and he was denied a pension because he was not ethnically Japanese. Now, these three men had entirely different experiences before, during, and after the war. Yet, they are forever tied together in history. We're left wondering, what drove them to persist decade after decade? I mean, there must have been mountains of evidence indicating that hostilities had stopped. We're not talking about the 1800s. This happened in the 1940s and 50s and 60s and 70s. So why, among the millions who fought, were they so obstinate in their refusal to admit defeat? Well, it's actually not so simple as that. Uh, the truth is that, of course, these three men are edge cases, uh, but they're not that different from the average warrior. Uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, warriors are made. They're not born. It takes a lot to convince a person to kill on command. And once you've done that, they're fundamentally changed forever. When you're at war, you spend most of your time thinking about home. And the rest of the time, you're, you're too busy to think. But when the war's over, you spend most of your time thinking about war and the rest of your time trying not to. That seems like a pretty good stopping point. So let's talk about Semper Bellum as a podcast series. We're going to talk about all things war, from ancient implements of destruction and the genesis of strategic warfare to modern battlefield tactics and an overview of the situation in Ukraine. You'll hear my story. You'll hear other people's stories. And we're going to spend a lot of time on history. So by the end of each episode, if I'm doing my job right, you walk away with more questions than answers. And that's because ultimately, in this quest to understand the nature of warfare, we are doomed. I don't think war can be understood. What I do know is that I need to talk about it. This podcast is an exorcism. Uh, and I suspect I'm not the only one who needs something like this. With that in mind, I hope you'll join me next episode uh, where we talk about the undeniable importance of archery and warfare and the genesis of war itself. Until then, I wish you fair winds and following seas. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, it is important to seek qualified assistance. In the U.S., call 911 if you need police, fire, or emergency medical assistance. Call 988 if you need to speak to a trained crisis counselor who can help with mental health-related distress. You can also text 988 to reach a mental health crisis specialist via SMS. If you are a veteran or are concerned about one, call 988, then press 1 to speak with a responder qualified to support veterans. You can also text 838 255 to reach the Veterans Crisis Line. If you have access to the web, visit www.ptsd.va.gov for the U.S. Veterans Administration's online resources related to PTSD.